before we begin today's episode, on May 2nd this year, we learned that uh, fellow podcaster Perry Johnson of Hello Life WTF and the Pod Stuff had been diagnosed with inoperable stage 4 cancer of the esophagus and the stomach. This hit the podcasting community pretty hard. Perry, man, we're rooting for you, brother. I fucking hate cancer. I'm just going to say it. My mom has been dealing with cancer for the last three years. I've lost a lot of people to cancer over the last 10 years, and this is tough. This is tough, but hey, man, we're, we're in your corner, and we're fighting, and um, we're all thinking about the Johnson family, so if you can help them, uh, there is a GoFundMe page, www.gofundme.com slash hellocancerwtf. I'm going to post the link to it in the show notes. If you can help them out, please do. Any any bit helps. It really does. I'm Philip Primo from the Semi-Intellectual Musings Podcast. On May 2nd, 2018, Perry Johnson was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer of the esophagus and stomach. The medical bills will be exorbitant, and as friends and fans, we can do something to help. Perry is a loving father, husband, and fellow podcaster. Perry and his wife Lindsay are the hosts of Hello Life WTF and the Pod Stuff Podcasts. They have shared their life with us and have helped others overcome hardship one story at a time. Many of us in the indie podcast community have come to be close friends with Perry. The outpouring of support has been incredible. Here are only a few of those messages. Hi, this is Elisa Lucas from Best Forevers, a podcast for kindred spirits. Hi, this is Cody. And Chris. From BSP, the Idiot Secrecy Files. Hey, this is Chris from Play Comics, and I'd just like to say that you've got to take care of the people that take care of you. Hello, I'm John from the Stranger Lands podcast. Hi, Perry. It's Megan. And RJ. And we're here. We showed up. We did. Look at us go. This is Patrick from the Sea Dogs podcast. It's Matt from Semi-Intellectual Musings and the Pot Stuff podcast. I'm Chris McBrien from Pop Goes Your World. Hey, Perry and Lindsay, it's Paul. I wanted to do this. So, yeah, I'm in my car, no microphone in front of me, no script, no nothing, just, uh, just talking. When I met Perry and Lindsay, it's when they interviewed me on the pod stuff. And I knew right away, I knew from the start, I knew from the get-go that we were going to be friends. And it's not because I geek out over friendship or just because they interviewed me on their podcast. It's because they give friendship. They are some of the most supportive, giving, and kind people that I've ever met in the podcast world. And folks, it is time to give back. We're here to talk about the wonder that is Perry from the pod stuff. Um, I personally know him from kind of the podcasting community and was lucky enough to be able to guest um, on their podcast, The Pod Stuff. And it was such a wonderful time. He and his wife were so giving and so funny and just so kind that they made the experience just the most fun I've ever had on an episode. I uh, got to know Perry after he wrote a review for The Stranger Lands. It was a very long review and it was uh, very funny and uh, it's one of those that we had to share with all of our friends and our families. Soon after that, we used to start talking uh, pretty often. I don't think there's been a week or a few days that's gone by where he and I hadn't chatted or talked. I became a huge, huge fan of his shows, Hello Life, WTF, and the pod stuff. I love him, and I hope that we can pull together and get him the help that he needs. Perry's taking care of us, making sure that we have all kinds of joy brought to our lives, and now it's time for all of us to return the favor, come together, and do what we can for somebody who is on 
undoubtedly just a wonderful human being. We just want to say that we're thinking about you and... Oh, did he get shot? Is that why we're sending thoughts and prayers? Yep, yep, we're sending thoughts and prayers because he got shot. (laughs) We're sorry, Perry, you deserve a better message than this because you're really awesome and funny and great and we suck. Thanks, Obama. Definitely improved my life. Brought many, many smiles to my face throughout the time that I've known him. Uh, Sometimes Perry says some inappropriate things and I just burst out laughing in the middle of traffic and the people sitting next to me in the car as I'm at a stoplight just look at me really weird. And then I slowly turn down my radio (laughs) and stare straight forward. (laughs) Gotta be honest, man, I was really nervous when uh, we're getting ready to talk to you. But then as soon as we started talking, you immediately set us at ease. That's why you and Lindsay are amazing interviewers and quickly became great friends of ours. You love to take care of others. Now you need to allow others to kind of take care of you. Let us help you be strong, P-Bear. Or Perryberry. Still workshopping those. You guys seem like just great people, and I would love to get to know you guys better. I saw your GoFundMe page, and I'll definitely be contributing to that to help any way I can. Just uh, stay strong, man. Like I know times may see time might say grand or dark, but after after hearing all these great people who are on your side and rooting for you. I hope it brings a smile to your face and know you can get through this with us. We've seen the outpouring of support that you've had. And so it's great to see just how many lives you've already touched. It's great to see the support system you have in place. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, it's not how long you live, it's how you live. Harry and Lindsay, I think they'll appreciate that to hold that and flap the pages there. This is my special message to uh, my fellow podcasters, Perry and Lindsay Johnson, to make sure they know they're being thought of and prayed for. And, you know, if my my me man, Perry, needs a laugh, you know, I'll get him a laugh. And you know, if he needs a TiVo, I'll give him a TiVo, you know, uh, in six easy monthly installments. But still. Whenever he was saying his days <laughs> of the week. Tuesday. Yeah, he, he says Tuesday instead of Tuesday. And it was something where I just could not get that out of my head. And now every time, even if I hear just someone say Tuesday... I hear him saying Tuesday in my head, and I kind of go, hee-hee-hee, in my head. I know Lindsay is a trooper, and and your families are, are hanging in there. Um, Perry, take that to heart, dude, because you, know, you are loved, and you are blessed. And I haven't stopped praying for you um, or your family, so you're doubly blessed. Perry is one of the most supportive uh, people you'll ever meet, um, him and Lindsay, you know. And just one of the nicest guys. So, you know, it's important that we support him at this time of, of his need, you know, because he supported us, supported us all this time as well. You know, I didn't know you guys a few months ago. I didn't know who you were. I didn't know what you did. And I just sort of ran across you on Facebook and started checking out some of your little live videos and stuff. And immediately saw how open and honest and warm and down-to-earth you guys were and was just immediately drawn to you and then I had the the honor of coming on your podcast and talking to you for a little while and just I feel like I've known you for years you know and this is hard man this is a tough this is a tough road to hoe and uh you know uh, 
cancer sucks, dude. And I know you don't want me to get choked up like I'm doing now. And I know you want fighters, so I'm going to be a fighter. And I will do whatever I can do to help you get through this. Because I love you guys. And uh, that's it. On my podcast, we talk a lot about purple shirts as a sign of friendship. And so, friends, let's put on our purple shirts for Perry. Wearing our purple shirts, standing behind him and behind Lindsay. Let's support them. Let's fight with them. Let's do it. Because we're in it to win it. We're here to fight for Perry and for Lindsay. His family needs him. His world needs him. Podcasting needs him. And he's going to win this fight. So... Love you, man. Get well, Perry. We love you, man. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon, brother. Just so you know, you have a lot of people that got your backs. Gonna do everything we can to help you get through this whole entire situation. Be here for you and anything else you may need, because you've been there for us, even though we didn't even know it. We uh, we love you, Perry, and th- we think you're awesome, and RJ's nipples miss you. They do, because we always do themed wines and drinks for our shows. We have that now, and we would like to raise a glass for Perry. That's for you. So raise a glass, put on your purple shirts, and join us to support Perry. Here's what you can do. Visit www.gofundme.com forward slash hello hyphen cancer hyphen WTF and donate today to help the Johnson's family reduce the cost of medical bills and help reduce the stress. Our current goal is to raise $20,000. It's ambitious, but together it is possible. In the campaign's first 24 hours, we were able to raise 10% of our overall goal. With your help, we can give Perry and his family a fighting chance. That's www.gofundme.com forward slash hello hyphen cancer hyphen WTF. Please share the GoFundMe campaign as much as you can. Share it to your Twitter, your Facebook, send it to your friends and family. Spread the word. Join Hello Life WTF's Facebook group and follow at PerryJohnson77 on Twitter for updates. Use the hashtag TeamPerry in all of your social media and make sure to pin the GoFundMe link to the top of your pages to show your solidarity. Perry is an important and amazing part of the indie podcast community. Let's all come together and show them how much we care. Thank uh, you. It, it, it's hashtags Perry's got jokes, not hashtag Perry got jokes. Anton. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought it <laughs> so free. Ladies I'm and gentlemen, away on a wing and a prayer. Yes. <laughs> Who can it be? Believe, Believe it, or, it not, or not, it's, it's just, just me. me. In 1871, Russian Baron Milklohu Maclay settled in the town of Medang on the north coast of Papua New Guinea. The natives believed Maclay and his crew to be long-dead ancestors returning as gods. Their beliefs were proliferated by the idea that life came in with the tide and death rolled out with it. The dead departed this world in great boats toward the setting sun. While there, the baron presented the natives with gifts of knives, axes, nails, and cloth and even introduced them to new plant species. From the Baron and his crew would come the first cargo cult, a new religion built from the new technology and the people that brought it to them. Their new gods were named Kilabob and Manup, and when these people left in 1884, they returned to heaven. The Germans would then move in, making relations with the local natives hostile. Wealth was important to the German people on the island, and it became an unequal relationship before long. 
a number of uprisings would have to be put down by the use of firearms. Some natives would even be exiled away from their home. This all changed again when New Guinea was given to Australia in 1918, after World War I, when its spoils were divvied up. Relations between Australia and the natives were good at first, but things started to go sour once they introduced Christianity to the region. Killabob and Manup were replaced with God and Jesus, and missionaries became the enemy of the people. By the time World War II hit the islands, they viewed the invading Japanese soldiers as the true ancestors of the island, and the Japanese used this new image to enlist the local natives to help keep the American forces at bay. Japanese occupation wouldn't last long, but when the natives looked to the American soldiers, they witnessed a collective of white and black soldiers working together. They brought local natives gifts of chocolate, beer, and food, and a new form of building far different from their own, made of concrete and steel. When the American forces departed, the people of Medang would build bamboo huts with grass roofs, an imitation radio equipment made from wood. With their wooden antennas aimed toward the sky, they would try to signal their gods to return in their great flying birds. None of their transmissions were ever returned, but these contactees would embrace a new way of life. Missions would flourish on the island from north to south. Fourteen years after the Good War's end, a group of UFO sightings would occur that would make believers out of many in the reality of UFO occupants. And perhaps the beings that flew them created a few cargo cults of their own, just by returning a friendly wave. What's up, Euphonauts? Welcome to the Our Strange Guys Podcast. In 1961, our UFO dad, J. Allen Hynek, was visiting the British Air Ministry as a representative from Project Blue Book. While there, a two-year-old case was brought to his attention involving more than 38 eyewitnesses, and was signed affidavits to boot. The case involved a man named William Booth Gill, an Australian Anglican missionary who had graduated from Brisbane University. Hynek noted that the British military didn't seem to take the case too seriously and were happy to have it off their hands. The British military adopted the attitude of many governments at the time, and looked to the United States to solve the, quote, UFO problem. Many were not willing to risk a public position over the UFO phenomenon, but few governments could also afford to do what the U.S. could at the time. Despite how strong this was a case in Hynek's eyes, he largely sat on it until the end of Project Blue Book in 1969, before sending an inquiry to the Department of Air, Commonwealth of Australia. And he didn't find their response all that convincing. Uh, the letter reads, Dear Sir, I refer to your letter dated 12 November 1969 concerning an unusual aerial sighting at Bwainai in Papua New Guinea. The RAAF could not come to a definitive conclusion on the report, and inquiries with the United Kingdom and the United States could add no clues or answers. As a result, these have been classified as aerial phenomenon, but most probably they were reflections on a cloud of a major light source of unknown origin. Yours faithfully. Around the time of Reverend Gill's sighting, there was a flap uh, occurring in and around Papua New Guinea. In fact, from October of 1958 to November of 1959, over 70 sightings would be reported. 
and the total area in this group of sightings was approximately 100 miles long by 50 miles wide. That is not big by any stretch of the imagination. 70 sightings within a year and a half, all within this small area, is pretty compelling. Most of the activity was concentrated in Buenay, the area of Reverend Gill's sighting, as well as uh, Benara, Giwa, Manape, and Ruaba Plain. On Buainai, the primary concentration of the objects was around Mount Pundi, which is like a 4,000-foot peak. Geographically, the area is the location of a fault line and in the vicinity of many volcanoes, numerous volcanoes. There's a lot of fault activity in that region. Reverend Norman E.G. Crutwell, who produced the first report on the UFOs in that area at the time, believed the objects may have been attracted to certain minerals common to the area, or perhaps its magnetic field, but it's unsure. The first sighting on Papua New Guinea can be traced back to 1953, when on August 23rd at 11 a.m., T.P. Drury, a director of civilian aviation stationed at Port Moresby, was walking on a road with his wife and child. His wife began to notice a cumulus cloud beginning to form. Quote, she called out to draw my attention to it, and I watched it rapidly build up into a thick white mass of cumulus. There were no other clouds in the sky, and there seemed nothing to account for it. Being interested in meteorological phenomenon, I decided to take a film of it. Suddenly an object like a silver dart shot out of the cloud. It was elongated in shape like a bullet. It was very clear-cut, sharp in front, but apparently truncated behind though the tail may have been hidden by the vapor trail. No wings or fins were visible. It shot out of the cloud upwards at an angle of about 45 degrees and was traveling at least five times as fast as a jet plane traveling at the speed of sound. It never slackened speed or changed direction, but simply faded upwards into the blue and its vapor faded after it. The vapor trail was very clear, dense, white and billowing, and it was visible in the remaining portion of the film still in my possession. In spite of the supersonic speed and nearness of the object, there was no sound whatsoever. I was greatly concerned about the appearance of such an extraordinary object in the sky, and drove straight to Jackson's airport and checked with air traffic control. There were no unusual aircraft out, only a DC-3 and a DC-4. I reported the sighting to the RAF, but they were unable to account for it. I later sent the film, which was sent all over the world, but no one could explain the object. I am absolutely certain of its reality, and I know all types of aircraft. I have flown 32 of them myself. End quote. It should be of interest to note that when Drury actually got the film back that he had sent out, the most compelling frames of it had been removed. Perhaps to study, but if so, why the hell didn't you return them? Over the next few years, random sightings would occur, but none as dramatic as the Drury sighting. That is, until Reverend Gill's. Reverend Gill's first sighting would occur months before the infamous ones in June that I'll be getting to. First, uh, a friend uh, named Kenneth Houston confided in him a sighting which occurred on October 18, 1958 in Wamira. He witnessed a star-like white light in the sky. But Gil brushed it off and told his friend that it must have been Sputnik passing by. As we all know, at this point, J. Allen Hynek uh, was part of the team that was doing satellite tracking uh, in multiple stations, including some that were, I believe, on Australia. 
one or two, maybe. On April 9th, 1959, Gill himself witnessed a light hovering in the vicinity of Mount Pudi. And it appeared to be in two different places. Like, he watched it, and he watched it move over. There's a chance that maybe he was watching a planet or a star or something, but he didn't seem to think so. A couple months later, on June 21st of the same year, Gill's assistant, Stephen Gill Moy, witnessed what he described as an inverted saucer above the mission. This gave Gill cause to write his friend, Reverend David Dury of St. Aidan's College. On the letter is dated June 26th, and it reads, quote, Dear David, have a look at this extraordinary data. I'm almost convinced about the visitation theory. There have been quite a number of reports over the months from reliable witnesses. The peculiar thing about these most recent reports is that the UFOs seem to be stationary at Buaynai, or to travel from Buaynai. The Mount Pudi vicinity seems to be the hovering area. I myself saw a stationary white light twice on the same night on April 9th, but in a different place each time. I believe your students have also sighted one over Buaynai. The assistant district officer, Bob Smith, and Mr. Glover have all seen it, or similar ones on different occasions again, over Buaynai, although I think the Benara people said that they watched it travel across the sky from our direction. I should think that this is the first time the saucer has been identified as such. I do not doubt the existence of these things. Indeed, I cannot, now that I have seen one for myself. But my simple mind still requires scientific evidence before I can accept the from outer space theory. I am inclined to believe that probably many UFOs are more likely some form of electric phenomena, or perhaps something brought about by the atomic bomb explosions, etc. That Stephen should actually make out a saucer could be the work of the unconscious mind, as it is very likely at some time he has seen illustrations of some kind in a magazine. Or it is very possible that saucers do exist, but it is only a 50-50 chance that they are not earth-made. Still less that they should carry men, more likely radio-controlled, and it is still unproven that they are solid. It is all too difficult to understand for me. I prefer to wait for some bright boy to catch one and to exhibit in Martin Square. Please return this report as I have no copy and I want Reverend Norman Crutwell to have it. Yours, Doubting William. Gil wouldn't have to wait long to get a response to his letter, though it would come in an unlikely source. On June 26, 1959, at approximately 6.45 in the evening, Gill noticed a bright white light reflecting off a patch of low cloud cover. From the front door of his hut, he stood transfixed. He called over his assistant, Stephen, and Eric Langford, another adult on the island. Both confirmed that the, what they were seeing was not a star and that it appeared to be descending. Furthermore, Gill from here struggled to describe the color of the light because it, it was changing. It was, he struggled between orange and a deep yellow. It was in between there somehow. Uh, but the color had a tendency to change to a blue-green when it was in motion. Gill grabbed writing utensils from here and took a detailed diary of this night and the subsequent night's events. From his perspective, the descending object was completely solid and he assumed it to be metallic. It was 35 feet in diameter, with a smaller, thick platform above it, about 20 feet in diameter. The object appeared to have four leg-like protrusions jutting out from underneath it. They all assumed it to be legs, but uh, it would never land, so it, it really hard to understand what they were. 
At approximately 6.55 p.m., the object had ascended and hung in the air uh, about 300 to 500 feet above them. And now there was about 38 eyewitnesses from the mission, consisting of 25 teachers and 13 students. What Gill noted was remarkable. Quote, As we watched it, men came out from this object and appeared on the top of it, on what appeared to be a deck on top of this huge disc. There were four men in all, occasionally two, then one, then three, then four. We noted the various times the men appeared, and then later on all those witnesses who were quite sure that our records were right and that they agreed they saw the men at the same time that I did and were able to sign their names as witnesses of what we assume to be human activity or beings of some sort on the object itself. Gil was adamant this whole time that these beings were human. They were also close enough to note that you could make out their features to a certain extent. Like, in his notes, he had specific numbers assigned to them because he didn't have names for them, obviously. But it's really fascinating to think about that they got so close that you could see them and what they were doing. From 6.55 until 7.30, before the object vanished, men could be seen on the top performing some types of actions. So in a follow-up interview 12 years later, Alan Hendry, who worked closely with J. Allen Hynek, they interviewed Gill, and he noted that the men seemed to glow. It wasn't coming from the ship. Like, they had a glow of their own, kind of like an aura or something like that. And they also noted that on top of the object, there was a light that would flash 45 degrees up into the sky, and it was a blue, kind of a blue beam. After the object disappeared in the clouds at 7.30, several small objects would replace it. But by 8.50, the original object would reappear, and various groups of the men would appear on top of it like before, eventually disappearing in the wake of storm clouds at approximately 10.30. Every eyewitness that night agreed on what was seen. Gil would have all the adults sign the report that he would produce, And many of them would draw what they had seen, and they all looked very similar. The next day, Gil would write another letter to his friend David Dury in response to his sightings of the previous night. Remember, he'd written a letter that day, the day before, the day of the sighting, and said, I'm not totally convinced of this. His response the next day was very much different. It had a believer's kind of attitude, and uh, he signed it, quote, cheers, convinced Bill. On the night of the 27th, the object returned at approximately 6 p.m., and it was first sighted by Poplon medical assistant Annie Laurie. She ran to Reverend Gill to notify him of the object's return. This time, the object was a little more distant. It wasn't as close as it was the night before, but they could still see the men emerging from the top of this thing with their naked eye. And also sighted at this time, too, were smaller objects that had been seen when the main object, which Gill had called the mothership, the one that the men had been appearing on top of, disappeared. So there was approximately three objects in the air at any one time. From 6.02 p.m. to 6.17 p.m., they observed a number of men on top, One was apparently bent over in the middle of the ship working on whatever. The other one was closer to the edge, gripping what they noticed to be some kind of railing. And when Gil noticed this, he actually put his hand up and waved to the people. Waved to this person that was bent over this. 
And in response, the guy waved back. Now that he's gotten his response, uh, another witness that was with him, Aninus, waved both of his arms up to the guy on the craft. And in response, two of the four guys up on the craft waved both of their arms back. And to further it more, Reverend Gill and Aninus both waved their arms, and all four men waved all of their arms back. So they attempted to communicate further with these beings, whatever they were, and they got a flashlight. Gill used the flashlight to signal them in the air using like some dashes, almost like uh, Morse code or something like that. And in response, a couple minutes later, the ship actually moved in a side-to-side motion that they described as being like a pendulum. And they continued to signal the object in the hopes that it would land. Like, it was getting a little bit closer, but it would go back up. And it would keep doing this. And when it was clear that the object was not going to land, Gil basically just said, well, screw it, I'm going to dinner. And at 6.30, that's what everybody did. When they figured out that the object wasn't going to land, they were going to dinner. This is believed to be because they were they observed a strict schedule, and they also had evening prayer that night. So, yeah, they just went on with their lives when contact wasn't going to come any closer. On the third night, there were UFO sightings again. Not as dramatic as the two previous evenings, but still interesting. As many as eight objects were seen that night, and at 11.20 in the evening, a sharp metallic sound was heard on the roof of the mission, and also a really loud bang. The next day, they went to see if there was any damage or any debris, but they couldn't find any. Numerous theories have been proposed for the sightings of these three nights. General Blowhard and all-around pile of shit Donald Menzel proposed that Gill had seen the planet Venus, that great fool of us all. I found it strange how the planet Venus has kind of become the Loki of UFO history. It really is the scapegoat for a lot of things. Hynek didn't agree with this. Hynek said that when you put your fist up into the air, it, it wouldn't account for the size. It would never have gotten as big as the object that Gill and everybody else had seen. Menzel would further his shittiness by assuming that Gill had myopia and astigmatism, even though he had pretty damn good eyesight. He was also a dick in the paper by saying, because the people weren't educated, that they didn't know what they were seeing. Well, fuck you, Menzel. General asshole Philip J. Class couldn't get over the fact that Gill and company had gone to dinner at 6.30 on the second night. Again, it's Philip Class. He attacks the person, not the event. So, in all reality, I don't listen to Philip Class, sorry. Many have gone on to consider this case a classic in ufology, including our UFO dad, as well as Jacques Vallée, Jim and Coral Lorenzen, and Jerry Clark. One theory that stands out among the rest was put forth by Martin Kottmeyer in an issue of Magonia, circa 1995 in November. He came to the conclusion that Gill had seen a fishing boat through a kind of false horizon effect. However, it doesn't take into effect the side-to-side motion the craft made the second night in response to their flashlight signals. It had never done that before, so it doesn't really hold water. It should also be noted that there were additional sightings during the nights of the 26th and the 27th from areas around New Guinea. One comes from Mr. Ernest Evanet on Giwa, who saw, quote, an object approached from a north-to-northeast direction. It was greenish and very bright, with a trail of white fire behind it. 
It looked like a shooting star. It descended quite close to me, appearing larger and larger, and slowing down until it hovered to about 500 feet above me at an angle of 45 degrees. The second comes from Mr. R. L. Smith, who noticed a bright white spherical light north-northwest from Benara and high in the sky. Quote, it appeared to be between eight and 9,000 feet from the ground. It has the appearance of a, quote, sparkler, which is commonly used in fireworks displays. Also, shafts of green light emanating from the base of the object appeared to be blotted out at regular intervals. A green light also appeared at regular intervals at various points of the object. There did not appear to be any definite order in the appearance of this light. The object looked as if it had a red base, or that a red glow was emanating from its base. It's unclear what everyone saw at Buaynai. Reverend Gill assumed the figures on the craft to be human and never wavered on that assessment. Perhaps we got a glimpse of some cosmic roadies preparing a stage for a band that ultimately never went on. Maybe they did see a false horizon event. While we may never know one way or the other, it's clear that 38 people in 1959 saw something extraordinary in our strange skies that still causes people to pause and consider the events at hand. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to email the show, you can do so by emailing ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. We also have a Facebook group, In Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Skies. Join the conversation over there. We post a lot of great links to a lot of different articles, and sometimes you even might get a paper from me that I found interesting. So much good stuff. We now have a Patreon page. Rewards include shout-outs, early releases of the regular episodes, and monthly bonus episodes called Their Strange Skies, where we look at UFO cases from other countries. In a way, this episode is a tiny offshoot of that. But if you'd like to support the show in that way, you could do so by heading over to patreon.com slash ourstrangeguys. At this point, I'm going to shout out all of the new patrons. And there are 14 of you, and thank you so much. So my buddy Angelo, Apollo, Ash, who did this awesome artwork for me. It's a picture of me and J. Allen Hynek, this awesome portrait, and it's my new uh, Facebook profile picture and my new Twitter profile picture. Thank you so much. Uh, Chris over on the Facebook group, thank you so much for your support. There's the great Desdemona. Thank you so much. Uh, she is amazing. She does artwork for us. She did the artwork for the Patreon bonus episodes, the They Are Strange Skies bonus episodes. She's a researcher. She's part of the OSIC, and she is such a great supporter of all the pods on uh, all forms of social media. So thank you, Desdemona. There's also Jennifer, who is also an OSIC member, and her support has been so greatly appreciated, so thank you. Jenny, Zanger, Lauren, Maja, I don't know if I pronounced your name right, and if I didn't, I'm sorry. Molly, another OSIC member, who does great work with us, thank you so much. Uh, my buddy Sam over at Not Alone. Uh, Robert Kane, dude, uh, I appreciate all the support over on Facebook, man. And, uh, of course, Ryan Sprague from Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you all so much. It means a lot. So we also have merch still available over at TeePublic. Uh, search for Our Strange Skies, and there are a number of designs over there. Also, 
big thanks to John Tenney. He came up with a J. Allen Hynek, Our UFO Dad sticker, and it's up in his store. I have about 10 of them, and I love each and every one of them. I'll provide a link in the show notes, too, uh, if you want to go purchase these stickers. I encourage everyone, purchase Our UFO Dad stickers. Absolutely. I was asked by a listener on Instagram to give a top 10 list of UFO books that I would recommend. I'm going to put that in the show notes. I'm not going to shout them out here. But, uh, yeah, check for that in the show notes. As always, big thanks to the OSIC members. I thanked uh, a bunch of them uh, already. But thank you all. You make the show so much better, and I appreciate it. I also want to give you all an update on what's to come. I apologize for the sparseness of episodes. I have had a lot of personal stuff come up lately. Uh, it's 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 been a lot to, a lot to bear, but... Releases may be sparse from time to time. That's just the nature of the way things are going for me. But I have a lot of great stuff coming up for you all. Uh, next week will unfortunately be another mini-sode. Uh, I, there's just a lot of research that I'm putting into things right now that uh, I'm not going to be able to deliver the f- a full length. But on the 28th, I'll be releasing Minutes of Our Mythology Part 2. And there will be a bonus episode at the end of the week uh, with upcoming guest MJ Benias. And we're going to be talking about the shittiest kind of information in the UFO world, disinformation. So be on the lookout for that. Beginning in June, I will be devoting the episodes there to the abduction phenomenon. And first up will be this kind of overview episode that I recorded with Rich Haddam, and we had a blast with it. We had so much fun, so you can expect that. I'll also be doing an episode on a specific abduction case, and uh, it's one that's fascinated me for so long, and I'm so excited to actually bring it to y'all, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, we got a new episode of the UFO Book Club coming up with uh, Brian and Angelo from Double Density and Sam from Not Alone. That'll be out on June 18th. We've already recorded it. I actually uh, I gave up sleep to record that episode, just so you know how much uh, I, I loved it. So the book this time featured is Somewhere in the Skies by Ryan Sprague, who also has a podcast of the same name. And what I'll be doing is I'll be releasing an interview with him and a Q&A. Uh, on the same week of that the regular UFO book club episode comes out. So if you're reading along and you want to submit questions, email the show and make the subject line somewhere in the sky's questions. Submit them by June 4th to have them included in the episode. At the end of the month, I will have the second episode of The Meltdown with returning guests Ryan and Spencer from the What If podcast. We're still ironing out exactly what we're going to be talking about, but it'll definitely fit into the abduction theme. So you have that to look forward to. Definitely a lot of good stuff coming up. And in July, we are currently in the throes of researching the big one. Ba-ba-ba-bow! Roswell! Yeah, so it's that's coming up. And we're going in depth. We're going to look at every theory. We're going to look at how everything came to light in Roswell. I expect it to be a two- to three-parter. We're going to try to get it in uh, all in July, but uh, definitely look forward to that in the future. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInTheSong.com. 
And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. Yeah.